This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Welcome to our show for and about grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. Coming up on the show tonight, community co-host Nick Burns will talk with Roanne Van Voorst, author of Once Upon a Time, We Ate Animals. She's a researcher and writer, an anthropologist of the future, her core research focusing on what she calls sustainable humanity. Also this hour, ProPublica environment reporter Mark Olalde on his recent story, Why the Second Driest State Rejects Water Conversation. The Salt Lake Tribune recently co-published the story, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes, but Mark is going to break down all the data he dug into through our GRAMA Act, Government Records Access Management Act. He takes a deep dive into our water policy and how water utilities, with the help of their allies in the legislature, prioritize the pursuit of expensive pipelines to draw water from other sources over steps to conserve the state's current supply. One thing I got to give him kudos for, he reviewed every bill related to water filed in the Utah legislature over the past decade, and he obtained hundreds of pages of Water District's internal communications, interviewed more than three dozen people in Utah's water world, and you're going to hear all about it later this hour. If you haven't heard, there is a COVID spike going on in the Beehive State. It's time to redouble your efforts to keep COVID at bay. Wear your mask, wash your hands, socially distance. Don't go into large crowds if you don't have to. And if you do, you better make sure that you're vaccinated and boosted. As you heard last night, Dr. Angela Dunn of the Salt Lake County Health Department has got a pit in her stomach about what's coming over the next couple weeks as our cases lag what's happened in larger cities and on the coasts. Coronavirus.utah.gov for the latest info, testing sites, and vaccination clinics, folks. Despite the spike, from what I understand, on January 6th, vigils for democracy are going to be held across the country as we mark the one-year anniversary since our capital was attacked by folks who disbelieved the outcome of the 2020 election. There is one plan from 6 to 7 p.m. in front of the federal building tomorrow night, 125 South State Street in Salt Lake City. But if you're feeling more like staying at home and going online, the League of Women Voters of Salt Lake's annual legislative forum happens from 6.30 to 8 p.m. online in collaboration with the American Association of University Women. The League's panel will be moderated by Salt Lake Tribune columnist Robert Gerke and feature Senator Kathleen Reby, a Democrat, Senator Daniel Thatcher, a Republican, Democrat Representative Karen Kwan, and Republican Representative James Dunnigan. Check tonight's show notes and rallies and resources for a link to sign up and get the Zoom link. And now let's turn the time over to community co-host Nick Burns and his interview with the author of Once Upon a Time, We Ate Animals, a thought-provoking and entertaining exploration of a future where animal consumption is a thing of the past. Here's Nick Burns. So Roanne Van Voorst, your book is Once Upon a Time, We Ate Animals. And thank you for joining me on Radioactive. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I really enjoyed reading your book. I enjoyed that you called it cheerful, and I do think it reads cheerful. And you describe, I think, a future that for many people is already here in many ways. You have a PhD in anthropology and you work as a quote, futures anthropologist. So tell me about being a futures anthropologist and how that relates to once upon a time, we ate animals. Yeah, so even, even the people in my anthropology department, I'm affiliated to the University of Amsterdam as a researcher. And even the people in my anthropology department find that alienating that I do research on the future. Uh, I think typically anthropologists are known to do research on the past because we really like traditions and, you know, the cultures that remain sustained over the time. Um, but from the beginning of my career, I've always been interested in what is going to happen or what is a trend that ha that's happening and how might that impact society or individuals or both and so i think it started in 2008 when i was doing research on the future of climate changes for which i went to greenland to live amongst the inuit because they have faster climate changes than we do because of the sun that's reflecting in the snow and for me, what is fascinating then is to go to place. You can't do you can't do research in the future. Unfortunately, I would love to, but you can do research on the future by going to the places in the world where something 
that seems likely to scale up within, you know, five or 10 or 20 years is already occurring. And that's what I've been doing. And so I have a double background. I obtained my PhD in anthropology, but I also am a trained futurist. And here in the Netherlands, I'm the president of the uh, Dutch Future Society, which is a organization for professional foresighters. So essentially I'm trained in making realistic future scenarios, which I do on the basis of uh, literature, but also in-depth interviews with experts. And once I have that scenario, I start looking in the world, where is this already happening? And can I live amongst those people? Can I do what they do for months or years so that I can understand and experience for myself what that might do? And when I started doing research on the future of food, that wasn't really a new topic for me, although it seemed like that perhaps for colleagues. Because in the years before that, I had been doing the future of climate changes, the future of natural disasters, the future of conflict, and whatever I did there, I constantly was linked back to this topic of the food industry. The food industry is causing a lot of environmental harm. Uh, there's a lot of water issues, there's pollution issues, etc. And so I started to become interested in this food industry story, like how did we get where we are now? And that evolved into almost a personal journey as well, uh, because I wasn't a vegan before I started writing this book, and I certainly didn't want to become an activist. I was a researcher. Um, <laughs> But there I went and suddenly there was a book and suddenly there also slowly but gradually came into being a person that, you know, ate more plant based. So that was a journey. No, I, it, I, I really liked how your book floats, I'll say, back and forth between a prediction of the future. You tell some interesting stories of family life and whatnot and children in the future, but you also ground this book in the present tense. I can think of Howard Lyman is one of the ranchers you profile. He's local here, Wyoming, close to where we are. He, he's the guy who famously was on the Oprah Winfrey show talking about mad cow disease probably 25 years ago now, um, which launched that ag gag lawsuit that Oprah Winfrey eventually won. But I was fascinated to read about Lyman is now a vegan. He's out of the cattle business. And you write about that for a number of farmers who have had identity crises. And I was fascinated by that, that here's a farmer who maybe raised pigs or raised cattle or chickens or whatever. And all of a sudden they've got a greenhouse full of veggies and are happier. Um, and I'm really interested in that notion of this identity crisis, not only for farmers, but for perhaps individuals who suddenly don't even wanna eat eggs anymore, for instance. Yeah, so let's start with the farmers because you know the yeah. first chapter is called How Farmers Can, can Save the World. And that is because I didn't want this book to be about like guilt or blame. There's so much polarized debate I find nowadays going on. Like the, the topic of food has become so political that you have the activist on one side and then the meat lobby on the other side. And I think with the farmers, what I find so interesting is that almost all of the livestock keepers that I got to know during this research or on whom I found uh, information online, they became livestock keepers or they became farmers because they love animals and because they have a sense of freedom over, over them. Like they're not office guys mostly. They wanna kind of structure their own days, right? And they wanna be out in nature. Um, and then they find themselves at a point in their career, in their lives, I should say, where they find that they lost both. So one, they are treating animals in a way that doesn't sit right with them anymore because they had to scale up and scale up and scale up to survive in our economy uh, with very low supermarket prices, etc. And so you kind of have to go from 70 cows to 7,000 cows, right? Or otherwise it becomes really hard. Not, not everybody is able to do it in the nice circular, small scale, um, ecological way, and they find that they're working over the top hard, many times almost nearing burnout because, you know, it's just really hard to survive. And so the farmers that I interviewed, for example, uh, there's a Swedish pig farmer that is in the chapter, and he, 
he really became a farmer, farmer because he wanted to be the good farmer. He wanted to be different than all the others. And he actually was. So he was an ecological pig, pig farmer. And then he explains how he started to feel worse and worse because the clients would come to the farm and they loved how the pigs were just kind of walking around freely, roaming around freely. Um, everything looked really good. They were happy to pay a little more, but only he knew what it was like to bring those animals to the slaughterhouse. And he knew, you know, they were going to the same slaughterhouse as every other pig. Also the pigs from the big industrial farming, that's not different. And he also knew he was sending them there earlier than, you know, mm. normal in nature, you know, they, they don't go after so many years, but here, because you kind of need the meat, you're sending away perfectly healthy animals. And that just felt weird to him. And he felt like a fraud. And so there were many like that. Uh, there's a UK farmer who's telling a same similar story where he says, I know in nature cows can live up to 20. And here, you know, after four or five years, I kind of send them away because I don't need them anymore and because their bodies are tired. And so they, you know, there they go. And it doesn't sit right. But then you go from being a fourth generation farmer, for example, to suddenly being something you don't even, you didn't even know existed, like lupine bean farmer or seaweed farmer. You know, you have many of those. And that is an identity um, crisis especially because oftentimes during the most of their careers, these people told themselves, I'm doing the right thing. Like um, Howard Lyman, like you say, his story is well, well known and all over the internet, I think, but I do believe it's such a beautiful story where he in a blog explains that he always thought he was doing something good, like providing milk and dairy and, and eggs and whatnot, or he was a cow farmer, a livestock yeah. keeper to the US audience, like he was feeding the population. But then at some point, his doctor tells him, go vegan because you're not healthy and this would be better for your health. And he goes vegan and he starts to feel much better and more healthy. And then, you know, that's a weird moment where you think, wow, so if our bodies apparently don't need this, then why am I doing it, right? Then the story in your brain doesn't make sense anymore. And so for him, he was one of the man, many who really described it as an identity crisis. Um, and I think on a smaller scale that goes for pretty much everyone who takes as a journalist, Ezra Klein once said in his podcast, he had taken the green pill by which he meant if you've read so much or seen so much about the, the food and dairy industry, particularly, you can't unknow. And then you kind of go over to the plant-based edge and it doesn't, you know, it goes against all the family tradition. It goes against that lovely memory of your mom making chicken soup when you were ill. Um, it goes against all the things that you were taught as a kid, like, oh, you need this in order to stay strong. Like when I, here in the Netherlands especially, we love our cheese. And I, w I was a kid and I was learned to drink a cup of milk three times a day because that was good for the bones. Um, and then suddenly mm. you're kind of learning new stuff. You're like, what? That's really so, not needed. Yeah. Identity crisis for you in writing this book? A crisis on many levels, I should say. Okay. I, <laughs> without being dramatic about it, but there were so many recipes, you know, that I loved making and that I, because during the writing of the book, and this cost me like four years or so, mm. um, I slowly but gradually became vegan. And beforehand, I, you know, I was a semi-vegetarian, I would, I would say. I, I think I became a vegetarian in my teenage years and I always tried to be honest there. It was because I liked animals, but it also was because I thought it was kind of cool. And so I was um i was not super strict when i was doing field work as an anthropologist for example i would eat whatever was available because i often work with yeah. poor people i still do that by the way I, I make exceptions for that but i would also still eat fish sometimes when i was um in the europe in europe or in the us um and then during the writing of this book i stopped eating dairy as well and you know you have to kind of let go of so many things but also 
before I started writing this book, I always thought that vegans were a bit the whining type of folks, like the, 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 the people that took things a little bit too seriously. You know, I, I always thought like, okay, I get it. You don't want animals to die for, you know, your taste. But really, can we not just use the eggs of the chicken? What does the chicken, is, is he going to suffer for that? Is the cow going to suffer? I didn't know. Is no. the cow going to suffer for, you know, just us taking the milk? I didn't really see the horrible point there. And when I started doing research, I did not only realize but actually, indirectly, we are killing those animals, right? Because all the male cows go to the slaughterhouse or almost all of them because we don't need them for the, for the milk industry. And so if you buy cow's milk in your coffee, then you're contributing to that weird system, very inefficient system, I should say. Mm -hmm. But also, I realized, like, I didn't know, you know, I was, I, I, they knew more than I did and I have been kind of judging them. And so that was an identity crisis. And then came my ego pride of, you know, I thought I was a good cook uh, and mm. chef. And I had some nice recipes. And my back then husband, he loved, liked them. And now I was experimenting with, you know, plant-based alternatives. <laughs> and not everything worked out, let's call it that way. I had to get used to a new way of cooking. It took me a couple of weeks, but still, they yeah. weren't the best but, weeks in our relationship. Yeah, but you get into that in the book. I mean, you have a large section on dating and having romantic partners who don't eat as you eat. Um, yes, the, I and the vegan sexuals, right? Well, the vegan sexuals, I love that. Um, and again, there are all kinds of famous people now who are vegans, rock stars. I can think of Formula One race car driver, Lewis Hamilton is outspoken. Uh, Instagram seems perfect. And I really... You know, here I am reading your book and I'm reading about, you know, cutting the beaks off of chickens and so on. And, you know, I come from a farm background. Both my parents are farm kids, so I know both sides. My uh, little cappuccino I'm sipping while we chat is soy milk, I will say. But <laughs> you, you, I really appreciated that your book took what I would say is this really wide perspective looking at dating, looking at what do you do when you go out on a date and you order something vegan and the person you're dating suddenly orders a hamburger or whatever it is. It's very complex to, to change yourself and to change the world. And isn't that interesting that I realized that for me to turn vegan, it wasn't my difficulty was not in letting go the dairy. I, I could live with that. It wasn't even in having to learn new recipes um, yeah. but it was there was a social fear that i found it really really hard to be different to be the one in the relationship or in the group of friends who always had to say like hey i love to come over for dinner but actually i have a diet that is outside of the norm because i didn't want to bother people with that which is strange if you look into it because i think most of the people agree nowadays that there are many disadvantages to eating a lot of animal proteins for the environment, for example. And almost none of us agree with the big industrial farming that we now have. Um, but nevertheless, I feel like I'm the person doing it wrong or, you know, and that was interesting to me. So I wanted to dive into how does that work? And part of the book is on, on that, because I think a lot of people are experiencing that where, for example, one family member says, hey, let's become uh, vegetarians or flexitarians and the others say no we want to stick to the meat and then you feel like the person pushing things in a wrong way which is fascinating yeah and I mean there well I mean I think we all know those people who are sort of vegan fascists um, that want to proselytize because they have this newfound sort of come to Jesus food moment but like you say even just you know, somebody invites you over for dinner and it's like, yeah, I don't really want to eat, you know, a pork chop. It, you know, you have to sort of put yourself out there. It's a strange place. And yet is. your book is, you know, your book is all about these animals and what we're doing to the animals. I loved that I learned learned a new word in your book, carnism. Carnism, yeah. Carnism, so, that, you know, the animals we eat, we consider stupid. And the animals that we do, that we don't eat, you know, dogs are smart. But pigs must be stupid. Um, yeah, that's one of dumb, the tricks. Right? They're just that's big dumb the, animals. Yeah. It, it, and it's different by different cultures. 
um, that was a whole new world to me. And I thought I was fairly smart about food and being vegetarian or vegan. But carnism, um, that blew my mind, actually. Yeah, and I think it's nice to have a concept there. And it's not my own concept. This is the concept of Dr. Melanie Joy. Um, but, it, but it helps to see because otherwise, you know, the vegans always remain a specific group. You know, so like, oh, there's the vegans and we're normal. But no, carnism is a decision too. It's like, it's a cultural practice to decide and eat animal protein, just like it can be a decision to no longer do that. Either you're a carnist or you're a vegan, which is, you know, it's interesting. It's just a decision. And I think if I wanted to do something with this book, it was showing people that eating animal proteins is not natural, normal, necessary. It's not all of those things. As human beings, we haven't always eaten meat. We were not hunters. We were scavengers. And for long periods in time, we've been eating a lot of veggies, but not so much meat. And so we can decide to lessen it again, you know, and that's a very different perspective. Yeah. I mean, and over the last few hundred years, it's increasingly a sign of wealth, right? If you're going to eat meat, it doesn't have anything to do really um, with what's healthy because there's plenty of ways to be healthy. But yet, if you were rich, you could have, you could live, to use a phrase, high on the hog, right? Um, yeah, and so things have changed as well, right? I yeah. think you and I still have a very romantic memory, perhaps, of what fishing is or what farming is. But if you look at back at, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago or now, things have changed so much. Like the lonely fisherman has now turned into huh. a huge factory system where none of us kind of feels comfortable with. Uh, also, there's so much antibiotics in, in dairy, etc., in meat, that, you know, things have changed. So sometimes I think it doesn't have to be that complicated for people who say, well, you know, going 100% vegan, that's a bit rough for me. I can get that. And I always, you know, argue, if you want to try it out, go with baby steps because it makes it more sustainable. But we could also think of how would it be if we started eating meat as much as our grandparents did, which probably wasn't that much, you know, perhaps on Sunday and on Wednesday or whenever they could afford, but not three times a day um, and not all you can eat buffets uh, and mm. chicken wings, you know, until you're oh. full. Don't, because oh, that's really that's really out. something of modern days, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, and that's, chicken wings, you you know, they figured out a way to market what they used to throw away. But we, I don't want to get into chicken wings because that would just gross <laughs> everybody out. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. My guest tonight is Roanne Van Voorst. She's a PhD, a futures anthropologist, and we're discussing her brand new book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals. You're in your book. I mean, you do cover this notion of diet. You cover the notion of protein. You also look at, and I, was, I wasn't surprised, but I enjoyed reading it. You also get into Impossible Burger and Beyond yeah. Meat. Um, and then there's also, and I know much less about this, test tube meat, where you're actually, it's still meat, but it isn't really from an animal. It's from a lab. Yeah. And that's yet something else we're looking at. Isn't that fascinating? I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but it's, yeah, what, what they do is they, they get tissue from one animal and then they kind of grow that tissue into actual meat. So it, it tastes the same. It's the same structure. It is meat if you would, you know, measure the yeah. ingredients to make nutritions in there, but you don't have to kill animals for, the, for, for it. And so... A lot of the animal activists don't really like it because it still involves, you know, tapping the blood and perhaps that's really painful. But then again, I think if you compare with what we do now, you know, and if it might be a nice transition for a lot of people who really long to have their meat, I don't know. It, it seems like a realistic option and it's already existing. It's just very expensive now. So. Yeah. I wonder about, I wonder your thoughts about this notion of beyond, beyond meat and impossible burger if you see those as transitional as a way that to just wean people off of quote meat completely, or if that would be something you would see in the future still, a, a, you know, a, a fake burger, if you will. Yeah, I know what you mean. I do think that when you start to eat more plant-based initially for a lot of people, and I did this myself as well, you try to kind of, or you think about cooking and eating as if you were still a carnist, right? As if you were still a meat eater. So people think like, oh, 
you you think about the meat and then you kind of make up what veggies go well with that or but but then if you just simply leave out the meat it becomes a very sad plate right it's only the veggies and a bit of potatoes that's not very healthy it's also not very nice and so i think in the beginning it might be really nice to have those fake burgers i also think it's really nice for mixed couples which i in the book uh, yeah. used to refer refer to uh you know when when you are already vegan and i'm perhaps a vegetarian but i still want to have my burger then at least we can have the same type of food and so it doesn't become that alienated where you have your own plate and i no we can both have a burger all of the ingredients are the same but i'll have my fake burger and you have your real burger so to speak but then i do think i've noticed with myself after a couple of months of cooking you start cooking in a different way and you're going to make new recipes that don't really need meat in there and so then you know it becomes more unnecessary so nowadays i i still sometimes use things like saitan mm -hmm. which is a product that is really chewy and so i sometimes make that if i have people over for dinner that aren't used to plant-based eating oh, and i kind of want to show them what you can do because for them it, it really is as chewy as meat is so you can make it into a stew for example mm -hmm. and then i i'm really careful to not make the big mistake that almost all vegans make namely hysterically pointing as at what you make and then saying can you believe this is plant-based no i just keep silent see how much they enjoy it and once they ask i'll say oh no that's actually not meat it's you know it's sighting and that really works and i can see more of that coming into the future but i think for now it's really helpful for people to have something that they know something that feels comfortable because they know how to cook it up mm. um but it's not meat so it's, it's less horrible to the climate you know and so they feel i'm doing a good job uh, but i'm learning and it's not too much of uh, getting used to yeah, I mean, you raised a good point that that it changing what you eat, eventually you'll find something you like better. But the change is hard, I think. Um, yeah. I'm intrigued in your book. There's something I wanted to ask about to go back to animals and slaughterhouses and whatnot. And I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but this fascinated me that there's actually been DNA tests to developed that you can administer to your pigs to find out if this individual pig is like too stressed out to make good pork and then yeah. you don't breed that pig. I yeah. was just, that blew my mind completely. I mean, I know that it's animal science, but the idea that here's a pig that's too stressed out to live and be slaughtered. So we're gonna find a happier, more mellow pig and then we'll kill that pig. I, that just that just blew my mind completely. Well, that's interesting. If you look at all the animal well-being studies, you know, the name sounds so nice. But but the, the main goal is often not to be really to, to have the animals live in a way that that they were built for, you know, because a lot of animals are like we are in the sense that they want to roam freely. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to die. But instead, the whole animal well-being studies or research is really about how can we make sure that the meat is at its right. best so that the meat doesn't get you know uh hard or a little bit i don't know harder to to chew or less less juicy right. stress chemicals in the slaughterhouse yeah. yes and as, yeah. as soon as as the animals gets more stress then you can taste that and so their main concern is with that and then instead of thinking hey we get you know we get this less tasty meat because the animals are stressed perhaps we should have a system that is less stressful for them. I mean, even if that would be, let's kill them on the spot and not send them to a slaughterhouse that's like three countries away in Europe. They, you know, they sometimes go right. for 48 hours in a truck without water, without drink, whatever. And then, you know, they get slaughtered there because you, you could say, let's change that system, but no, instead we'll try to breed pigs that can feel less stress. Now, the newest thing that's not even in this book, but what I re read recently was that they're now trying to create, and I think, I'm not sure if they managed, I think they have, to create uh, pigs with extra nipples so they can have more piglets. You know, and it's like, really, friends, oh. is this 
you know, what we're using the energy, the brain power, the money for, instead of using all that energy and power and, and, and time. To feed hungry people. Ugh. For example, or to think of a better system to, Ugh. you know, create plant-based food that are, that, that are nourishable. Yeah. No. Well, a few minutes we have left. You, you write in the book about Cecilia, and many of our listeners probably know uh, the story of the great ape, the chimp that uh, yeah. finally achieved the status of a legal person because of the poor living conditions in Argentina. I wonder, in your in your research, what do you think about, say, the future of zoos? If if we're going to move away from eating animals, do you see a future where we will look at zoo animals differently? I do, I do believe that we are slowly getting there and you see worldwide, you see a closing down of zoos. And I think especially for the bigger animals that goes, mm -hmm. I think, you know, it, it, there is an educational aspect for sure. You know, you can always say it's interesting for kids to see how these animals behave. But then again, if you see a lion walking around in a zoo, oftentimes it's not how he really behaves. It's, you know, they they have so little space that I think for some animals, it might be good. It, it's okay. They don't really mind, perhaps. I don't know. But for others, I don't think it's fair to have them there. Now, that doesn't mean that the animals that are there now probably cannot survive in the wild. So yeah. I think now we will keep many of them. But you can see already that some of the zoo owners are changing the zoos, you know, in style. Like, okay, so perhaps not buy any more elephants or uh, lions, but instead go for the smaller animals, go for the insects, for example. Can children not learn about insects? And then again, also nowadays, it becomes much easier to learn with virtual tools, right? So we can learn on the laptop, have the animals in their own environment, and we don't need to do that crazy thing of, you know, catching them from the desert and then getting them to the US in a climate where they don't really belong. So I think slowly, even though, you know, I have a daughter of one year old and sometimes yeah. I think, wouldn't it be nice? But then again, she kind of enjoys looking at cows as well, you know, so she doesn't really need to see a real lion. So I think slowly in the future, there will certainly become less. And especially with aquaria, I find for whales yeah. and dolphins, we know now so much better that they really aren't well in those small basins. Oh. Um, yeah, and so unfortunately, it's nice for the people, but it's just not nice for the animals. And we we know better. And so I hope we will behave better as well. Yeah, it's hard because you see, you see, I haven't been to a zoo in quite a while, frankly, but last time I did visit a zoo, I noticed the marketing had really changed that the marketing in the animal enclosures were all about sustainability. And this is yeah. a threatened animal. And basically, the message was, it needs to be in the zoo or it'll just be extinct. Um, and I think that's maybe a slightly different question, but I'm, yeah. intrigued. I was, I'm intrigued by what that might mean for the future. But like you say, with the laptop, you can easily go to Africa um, easier than you can go to a zoo. Um, something else from your book that, that it, I was reminded of, and that is uh, years ago on the show and back when I was younger, Diet for a Small Planet was sort of a food Bible book which pushed vegetarianism back in what I would call the hippie days. And there was a huge move, a huge move among many, many people to get away from meat. And back then, not so much veganism, but certainly vegetarianism, ovo, lacto. Um, and you do get into that in your book, the notion of complementary proteins and, and even the author of Diet for a, Fall, for a Small Planet, rather, Francis Morlapay eventually said that, you know, we don't need all that protein anyway. But that didn't last for the world. You know, the, a lot of those people who were vegetarian in 1978 or whatever, uh-uh, by the time the yuppie days showed up, not so much. But your book, um, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, I see a lot of optimism in your book that we are going to finally change. Yeah, I think things have changed. You know, yeah. one of the reasons why I never wanted to become a vegan, because I, you know, before I knew that they were kind of Jeez. right, was also because I thought, you know, I knew perhaps two from the village that I used to live in and they looked very pale and they were not very hip. And they both worked in one of those ecological, you know, shops that as a teenager, you really don't want to be in. 
And so I think in those days, it was really hard. I had a very hippie-ish mom who tried to be a vegetarian and then became horrified because she had to make her own carrot sauce, you know, in order to make something out of mm. nothing. But I think nowadays, especially with all the plant-based alternatives, um, first of all, it's really easy to make a good meal. There's so many online recipes, recipes on a budget, uh, things that are really easy to make. So I think it's really easy. And also, I think the knowledge has changed. So we know much better now what animals are experiencing. I think 50 years ago, we didn't know mm. that pigs really seem to be as smart as dogs or even as toddlers. You know, we, we didn't know that cows were actually pretty playful. And that makes a big difference, I find. And then the urgency is just really growing. And, you know, if I have lectures for children, sometimes you can see that the, the children in classes, many of them are really concerned with the climate because they, they keep hearing all the bad news. And then they also know about the association with the food industry. And so for them, it really is a weird question. Like, so you guys, the adults know this as well. So why are you not changing? Why are you not making sure that we will have a better life? You know, some of the kids really ask that and they ask that to their parents as well. And I think it's such a harsh and confrontational question, but it's also good because it always reminds me that we do play a role in history. We do it whether we are continuing the habit that we have now or whether we're changing that habit. But I rather want to answer my daughter like, oh, well, as soon as I found out that there was such a big link, I really, I really try, tried to contribute in my little way by at least, you know, giving up something that perhaps was a little bit comfortable, but of which I knew that it wasn't doing much good to the world. And so, you know, I had my veggie burgers by then and that just feels better. So it doesn't feel like giving up something. It feels like a relief, like, oh, at least, you know, that feels like a right decision. And I think for many more people, that's the case nowadays. Well, in the seventies, that was perhaps a bit less mm. urgent. That's true. Good point. And of course we've seen the huge rise of factory farms and whatnot, but I have to say, Rowan, I mean, you're changing the world one small person at a time, right? <laughs> your daughter, if your daughter grows up on soy burgers, then going to a restaurant and seeing a big bloody steak is just going to be weird, right? It's, it's yeah. all what we're used to. It's yeah, cultural. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, many of the uh, the things that kids like, like the, the little willies, etc., they're very salty, they're very snacky. And those are not like the things that are hard to remake from plant based alternatives, yeah. you know, so I think for her, it doesn't really matter. And of course, yeah. I, I pay real good attention, attention on her health, for sure. But that's not really hard. Well, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I do want to let folks know that I love the book. And I also really admired that you point out that just because it's vegan doesn't mean it's better, right? Like Coca-Cola is vegan. Um, Ritz crackers are vegan. That doesn't Absolutely. mean it's good. And there's probably some times when being vegan is perhaps not as sustainable, but still, I just, I thought, I thought the overall attitude of your book you used the word cheerful that I mentioned earlier. I just loved reading it. And I loved the sort of wide scope that you scoop up to talk about when it comes to veganism. That well, it isn't so one much. thing, it's a thousand things. So Exactly. I and I wanted to be really honest there. And I don't think, you know, if you eat vegan, everything suddenly is good. And you're going to be glowing like an Instagram influencer, you know, showing off your green juice. No, you you could also live of vodka and proudly say that you're vegan. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I hope I just wrote a very realistic book that gives answers to the questions that I had myself. No, it's it's very readable. And I'll just end with, I loved your last chapter, the want to know more. That hmm. not, only, not only do you include lists of other informative books or movies or podcasts, but you have a like what to do and what to cook, a cookbook section. Um, and I really found that like a cheerful wrap. Um, mm -hmm. Not much fun to read about you know, pigs being slaughtered and beaks cut off of chickens and that kind of thing. But I just like that sort of you, I think your book ends on this real upbeat, no, up, a real upbeat spot, I'm trying to say. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you for reading. <laughs> oh, no, my pleasure. I, it was, it was really, when you said cheerful, I'm like, okay, surprise me. And you did. So Rowan, thank Yay. you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Wonderful.
So next book, if you continue your future's work, will you bring your next book? I'd like to talk again when you have something else in the future. Well, you know, my, my new book in the Netherlands is coming out this month and it's on the future of love. So I'll warn you when it's translated. I would love to talk about that. Hit me up with more love. I could use that. Yeah, so, we all can. For today, the book is Once Upon a Time, We Ate Animals. The author, Roan Van Voorst. Thank you very much for taking time to join us on Radioactive. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure to me. Radioactive community co-host Nick Burns talking with Roanne Van Voorst. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the author and her book. When we come back, my conversation with ProPublica environment reporter Mark Olalde, whose latest story is Why the Second Dry Estate Rejects Water Conversation. He's talking about Utah, folks. Happy New Year, Carousel friends. Thank you so much to all the local businesses that continue to make our community so great. Here's to shopping local in 2022. Hi, this is Sohrab. Join me every Sunday night from 7 to 10 for a meditative mix of ambient, electronic, new age, and world instrumental music on Atmosphere Radio. A celebration on the meeting of sound and silence. Atmosphere Radio, Sunday nights at 7 on KRCL. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Mixtape at 8, Maximum Distortion at 10.30, and Root Awakening at 3 a.m., followed by John Florence's Brand New Day at 6. Steered by the state's largest water districts with the help of their legislative allies, Utah has prioritized the pursuit of new pipelines over large-scale conservation programs, reports my next guest, Mark Olalde of ProPublica, a story co-published with the Salt Lake Tribune recently. Mark, welcome to Radioactive. Thanks for your time. Of course. Great to be here. Now, I'm used to covering these stories with in-state folks who are on this issue and that you also include in your story, like folks from the Utah Rivers Council, which recently had a report that it co-authored about Utah and other states' use of the Colorado River. But you go through the details. You go to the devil on this one, so to speak, Mark. What data did you dig into to get this ball rolling? You know, it started with a a pretty basic question of the Colorado River Basin is over-allocated. It's fought over. We've got negotiations starting, ongoing in the future. Um, And Utah seems to be the most aggressive player on the river. So why is that? And the data there, honestly, is is all over the place. We know that usage data uh, is studied in very different ways and calculated in very different ways, state by state. So I kind of tried to answer in some more qualitative uh, ways why Utah is acting the way it is in terms of water policy. So what I did was I I built a data set of every water-related bill that was filed in Utah over the past 10 years. Um, I kind of went through the political shenanigans in each of those bills. Um, Then I filed records requests for communications among a lot of the key players as they negotiated some of those bills to try to figure out, you know, what does a standard water bill go through uh, as it gets through the legislature in Utah. So much of this happens out of sight, out of mind for the average Utah, and yet here during this drought, they wonder where it's all coming from or who to look to for accountability. And you come across this group that refers to itself or is referred to as Prep 60. Can you tell us about this powerful group, how they um, coordinate and behave? Sure. And it's totally understandable. Water is very complicated. There's very different layers of who buys, who sells, how water ultimately gets to your tap when you turn that on. Um, Prep 60 is short for Prepare 60. It's a reference to the idea that Utah's population will roughly double between 2010 and 2060. Uh, And Prep 60 is composed of four members, uh, the Central Utah, Weber Basin, Jordan Valley, and Washington County County Water Conservancy Districts, uh, which sell water to cities and towns who then will sell it to, to you as a person, or business, et cetera. Um, they cover about 95, or excuse me, 90% of the population of Utah. So at one point in time, most Utah's water will pass through these organizations. Um, and so they're tasked with, with running a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the federal water delivery infrastructure that was built 
to get water to and around Utah. Um, and for good reason, they're very active uh, in the policy around water because of, of who they are and what they do. Um, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper and figure out, is the influence they have, uh, is it proper and how do they use it? And uh, we, we found through a lot of these records requests and research that they weren't always doing what you might think a water district would, would be doing. They weren't always focusing on conservation um, or other ways to save water as opposed to trying to kind of forge ahead on, on uh, major water, water projects, whether or not that water might exist in the future. As you report, other states have taken steps, some painful steps, to draw back or step back from their over-allocations of the Colorado River. But you say Utah, Utah's political leaders are hell-bent on getting what they see as their full share of the river. And can you talk a little bit about that? Do, are we not getting our full share here in Utah? Or are we just behind and over-allocating like other states? And that's a very complicated and, and great question. Thanks for asking. Is the way the Colorado River Compact and the law of the river is set out uh, among the seven basin states, Mexico and the tribes that have access to the water, uh, it says a certain amount of water must be delivered to the lower basin states, um, downstream to Arizona, to Nevada, to California, and the upper basin states get a percentage of what's left, which has led to a really interesting legal question of, is that a percentage of when the compact was written? Is that a percentage of what's left? Now, what does that mean? And that's kind of an, an open, still an open question. Um, what's clear is that the river is over-allocated, and what's clear is that the lower basin states uh, used to take way more water than, than was, was reasonable to, to exist within the means of what's in the river. Uh, and some of the upper basin states that might have had snowpack coming from, from other mountain ranges or water from other rivers outside the basin might have been a little slower to, to develop. But the reality today is that the river is not the river that it was 100 years ago. And the reality today is that the lower basin states that were very aggressive for years are starting to come to grips with reality more than the upper basin. I used to report in Southern California where the Salton Sea is this, this kind of analogy to the, uh, the Great Salt Lake in which it's a terminal lake, it's drying up, we have a playa that's releasing toxic dust. But the reason that's happening in California is that lake was Colorado River water fed. And they said, this isn't sustainable. We can't have this. We can't have this lake. So we're going to take the sacrifice that is letting that start to dry up. Whereas Utah and some of the other upper basin states are, are nowhere in the, in the realm of, of that aggressive, that harsh or that painful of a step at this point to, uh, to get back within what the river can, can provide you know, we're used to the spats between Utah and Nevada in particular over who wastes more water, who gets more water, the big SIP controversy of a few years back. But uh, conservation efforts uh, in your article, Nevada throws quite a few stones about what we're willing to spend of our own dollars, not just federal dollars, on encouraging conservation. Can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. And it's, it's in fairness to Utah, it's, you know, Things are different in different climates, in different parts of the desert, in, in different political uh, environments. But, you know, just the, the kind of basic municipal conservation step of lawns. The Southwest is an arid region. Uh, in other parts of the Southwest, that's been a lot more accepted um, that the desert needs to be a desert and, and water in the desert shouldn't be used for lawns. And that's a, that's a stance that just hasn't been taken in Utah yet, where it has been taken in places like Nevada. Yeah, Utah's so history is that we will make it bloom like a rose, as Brigham Young said back in the day. Exactly. There's, there's a lot of culture and a lot of history wrapped up in the question. So I tried to figure out just let's compare one, one thing apples to apples. And that was uh, in Las Vegas, uh, the Southern Nevada Water Authority, uh, uh, versus in the Wasatch Front, the Central Utah Water Conservancy uh, District, the question of what are they doing to get rid of lawns and use that water for, for higher purposes. Um, and Southern Nevada in the Las Vegas area, you could have gotten paid to rip out your lawn as early as 1999. And at this point, they're offering up to $3 per square foot of turf removed. 
They've paid out $258 million. They've removed uh, more than 200 million square feet of turf and put more kind of desert water-wise type landscaping in uh, just within the Southern Nevada um, district. Whereas the Central Utah district, kudos to them for launching a program, but they launched it in, in the end of July, beginning of August of this year. They've paid out about $15,000 so far. Um, they've, they're just removing park strips. So it's, it's, this, this vast difference between when conservation efforts began in some other states and the magnitude uh, and the urgency in some states versus the conservation efforts that are underway in the state of Utah. Talking with ProPublica reporter Mark Olalde about his recent article co-published with the Salt Lake Tribune called Why the Second Dry State Rejects Water Conservation. You know, and I've covered a lot of rip your strip conversations for years here in Utah. Um, But how we allocate the money on this is interesting, and how we count things is interesting. So you found that some projections by the state of Utah and our water districts rely on faulty data and questionable cost estimates, which confirms what Utah Rivers Council has been saying for quite a while now here in Utah. What did you find? So I looked into two of the main development projects uh, that Utah is proposing, which would be the Lake Powell Pipeline, pulling water from Lake Powell to the St. George area, and the Bear River Development Project, uh, pulling river from near the Wyoming-Idaho-Utah border down to the Wasatch Front. And both kind of had some data points that people like Zach Frankel from the Utah Rivers Council have been have been pointing to. And I, I wanted to do a simple, a simple thing that reporters do, which is just check those accusations, check those claims. Uh, on the Bear River front, uh, that was interesting because the question there is less about, is there water in the river? Uh, and more about what happens downstream because the Bear River is the main tributary for the Great Salt Lake. And you know, as your listeners are well aware, air quality uh, needs to be addressed in the Wasatch Front. And the more the Great Salt Lake Uh, dries up, the more you have this exposed kind of toxic dust in places. And if you take a lot of the Bear River and remove it from flowing into the Great Salt Lake, what does that do for the lake level? What does that do for the dust? And so the state says, if we develop this project, it will only drop the lake eight and a half inches on average. um, So it's not a huge deal. Uh, That, however, I spoke with the lead author of the white paper where that number comes comes from. And he acknowledged that that number isn't peer reviewed. That number isn't a, the methodology behind it isn't published. He said, this is a white paper. This isn't supposed to be doing what the state is doing. Um, on, on the Lake Powell pipeline front, you know, that's based on supply and demand, what we need, what we have in Washington County in the St. George area. Um, you know, in 2015, the state audited uh, its own data and the data that was coming from water districts to try to figure out do we fully know how much water we have? Do we fully know how much water we need? And the answer was a resounding no. Um, the answer was our data is wrong. Uh, three of the, the state's own water agencies acknowledged their data was wrong. There were instances where uh, a city in Utah reported water use for an identical named city in New York State as its own water use. And if that's happening, you know, we need to clean up the data, which they started doing uh, in a 2017 audit found that they started to do this. Um, but but these are the types of numbers that massive one, two, three billion dollar pipelines are based off of. And uh, so I think there's some some pretty valid questions there of can we step back and clean up this data and make sure we have a better understanding of what's actually there uh, before we move forward. And, and I think the other kind of elephant in the room in Utah in the water world right now is that there's so much change in the state from agriculture to development. I mean, the state is booming. It's a beautiful place. I get it. People want to be there. And, but, but residential uses, uh, uses less water on an acre than, than farming does because you don't have to put as much water for alfalfa or whatever else it is. And there's been 200,000 acres in the past five years or so that have converted from agriculture to residential. And so that also raises question of, well, how much water is here? Can that water be repurposed um, and bought locally. So we're not fighting with other states for for water along the Colorado River. You also used public records requests to paint a picture of a cozy relationship between um, regulators and lobbyists. Absolutely. And that was uh, an interesting experience in itself. There was um, 
uh, I would say lack of transparency from the Utah legislature in wanting to uh, to let let, uh, let me get access to records that I would argue should be very public. You had to fight um, for them, I take it. I did have to fight for them, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful to work at a place like ProPublica that was willing to put uh, money towards towards getting these records. But um, I, I would argue that anyone in the public should be able to access, uh, access these public records. Um, but what I found was that there are a few kind of committees and sub-agencies within um, the, the legislature and the executive uh, that develop water policy and vet water policy. And these have seats on them for water districts uh, and other kind of non-legislators. And they, they, take, they take the idea of vetting kind of a, a step further and via these records requests, I found that the main lobbyist for this Prep 60 group, this group of these major water districts, uh, was working hand in hand with leadership from the Utah Division of Water Resources to write amendments um, and weaken conservation bills that had been written and proposed by elected uh, representatives uh, you know, in, in the Utah House of Representatives. And so that kind of raised some questions on you know, what level of cooperation or what level of partnership uh, should someone like a lobbyist have uh, with, you know, with technocrats within the state structure. Well, and one lawmaker in particular got quite an education in trying to run a bill and how things work, you found. Exactly. Uh, Representative Suzanne Harrison is a Democrat um, around Sandy. She filed a bill that she thought would be an easy win. And it was the idea was that she would uh, mandate goal setting um, around similar to Denver's uh, per capita water use. And the idea was the mandate is that you, that you look at this goal. The mandate is that you think about this goal, figure out how you might get there. It stops there. She didn't want to go any further at, uh, at that point. She just wanted to get a conversation going. And the emails that I found between uh, the Prep 60 districts, their lobbyists, uh, lawmakers, was that there was pretty quick resistance. Um, she likened it to, uh, to to getting burned when you try to uh, try to take on water policy. And uh, I, th- I think she was a bit surprised by the, the magnitude of the pushback that came very quickly. Yeah. And there was, you know, the, the, in defense of the districts, there was a goal setting process that was already underway. Um, but the ironic thing there was when those goals eventually came out, they were much higher than what the representative had proposed. And if we're just talking about goals, uh, we're not talking about real kind of cutbacks and mandates in that front. Uh, You know, I think there was some confusion over why fight so hard against a goal setting bill when your own process is, uh, is, uh, please forgive my pun, is a lot more watered down. (laughs) Well, power is power. Water seeks its own level, and so does power, apparently. So, Mark, in closing, you address future priorities as Utah discusses how to spend $100 million in federal COVID-19 relief on water issues. The governor's included it in his new budget. And you relate an interesting story during an interim legislative meeting in September. Can you just kind of relay that picture for us? Absolutely. I was hanging around uh, your beautiful state capitol and uh, definitely not trying to eavesdrop, waiting to speak with uh, the head of the Department of Natural Resources. And he had just gotten out of a meeting uh, with the Executive Appropriations Committee pitching how to spend federal relief funds. And he said, let's put it, let's put $50 million, this big chunk of money towards conservation. This is conservation that the the prep 60 districts uh, know works, that the state, they know this works. Uh, it's a it's a very straightforward way of saving a lot of water uh, in the Wasatch Front, and he he just got out of the meeting. He pitched it. Everyone seemed on board, and they did eventually approve this this funding request. But as he gets out of the room, um, and I'm waiting to talk to him, I see a lobbyist walk up to him, and the lobbyist says, "Well, do we really need to put all that money there? Can't we just get a little bit of that money for uh, for a reservoir? Can we get some for you know?" for this large water infrastructure I need in my district. And it just struck me as kind of encompassing this whole idea of we've got a conservation path that everyone within the state seems to agree on. You've got federal funding. You don't even have to ask Utah taxpayers for more. And yet they're still chipping away at it here and there. 
and it just uh, it seemed to kind of wrap everything up uh, all in one picture. Which is interesting because a reservoir would hold water, and the cheapest source of new water is the water we save, Mark, right? That is, according to uh, internal calculations I found from the water districts, they found it was uh, a magnitude cheaper to uh, to just conserve water that's already flowing through the state than it is to build major new pipelines. Well, Mark, this database, the reporting, just incredible resource for Utahns that are interested in this issue. Thanks for your work. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on. Mark Olalde of ProPublica. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the report and all the data that he has amassed in looking into Utah's water story. I'm Laura Jones. My thanks to Mark, as well as Nick Burns and Rowan Van Voorst earlier this hour, and you for listening to the show. Have a great night. See you tomorrow.